What's up, Wildside Besties and Baddies? I'm Bailey. And I'm Chelsea. And we're here to walk you through the wild sides. From homicides to hostides and everything in between. We're so glad you're here, so buckle up and enjoy the ride. So, everybody, I know, everybody's so excited because they're literally like, Bailey's the funniest, prettiest, (laughs) most talented, most interesting person I know. (laughs) And I was like, I'm, I, Bailey and I both are going to be on the podcast. And they're like, oh, how's Bailey doing? And I was like, I'm fine. Thanks for asking. It's funny because I feel like my humor, I'm usually just the one that's like, oh, whatever, fucking kick rocks. (laughs) Shut the fuck up. <laughs> but we chose a genre where I can't do that because I'm going to have all these people who are like, you know, they have feelings too. Serial killers have you're feelings too. So... <laughs> you're so insensitive. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. You guys are going to listen to like this transition of, you know, maybe I'll, my true colors will start to show the further we get into these episodes because I'm still trying to like figure out how I can't you know call him a dumb fat fuck without you know fat shaming so I don't know how to do that yet right right (laughs) there's gotta be a delicate way to do both and so all right you guys we are gonna get into it today man this is gonna be a long interesting story It's probably going to end up being a two-parter. I'm here for it. I'm here for the ride. For the fun ride. The wild ride. You sure do. Dude, have you guys heard lips? You sure have. You you girls sure are pretty. You sure are some pretty (laughs) girls. Thanks, Mr. Norris. Mm. Thank you. So... This whole thing, I wanted to, we're going to end up going down to Bayou Country, Cajun Country for this episode. We're going back to some old stomping grounds. Our old stomping grounds. And I have tried to like do the whole Cajun accent. Like, you're going to go there and we're going to see about the tree. Take on down, turn down, And I can't do it, no matter how hard I try. No, I think you're born with it. You have to be born with it. Yeah. It's like, maybe you're born with it. Maybe it's Cajun <laughs> fucking accent. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but it did make me think of, you know, this area of, so we're going to be kind of going into the southeastern Louisiana for this episode. And as I was typing this up, I had really mixed feelings, right? Because I'd be like, oh, this is really sad. And then I would be like, oh, God, you know what sounds so fucking good right now? Is a beignet or a po' right? boy. Let's get a po' boy. I know. Yeah. So reference, we we spent, I would say we grew up down there. I, yeah. I think we stayed there long enough in our childhood, in our formative years, to say that we grew up in South Mississippi, yeah, like South right Mississippi. close to the Louisiana border. I mean, like 
stone's throw to the Louisiana border. Yeah. So we're like honorary Mississippians, which makes us honorary Cajun Louisianians. Correct. Yeah. We're the dirty, the dirty, dirty, the dirty South. Yep. And so apparently um, the serial killer that we're going to be talking about today was active like within the last 15 years. I mean, it started more than like 25 years ago, but he had like a 10 year stretch. And I was kind of pissed when I found out about it because I never knew I had never heard about him until again, I was doing research for, for the podcast. And, um, so it was just kind of surprising to me. And so it was covered locally, like in the local news and we're going to get into the areas, but like, it's mostly around Homa, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Um, but it didn't get like national coverage, global coverage, despite the victim count being almost two dozen victims. What? Yeah. They're just going to skip, they're just going to like skip past that on national news. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think we'll get into like some of the reasons potentially why behind it. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, there was at the end, after confessions and everything, it was 23 victims total. Dang. Yeah. And that was just murder victims, not other types of assault victims. So so this is actually the case of uh, the serial killer, Ronald Dominique, a.k.a. the Bayou Strangler. Okay. Have you ever heard about this? Ronald. Nope. Oh, Ron. Oh, Ron. And so I am going to start it off a little bit differently. And I'm going to talk a little bit about like Louisiana in general before we start getting into the crimes. Because I remember the Mm -hmm. first time that we were driving into Louisiana when we moved from Mississippi, I kept seeing these signs around like parishes and I had no idea Mm -hmm. what that was. And so Mm -hmm. if you're not from that area, it can be kind of confusing Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to start off kind of with a history of, of parishes and like take you through where this stuff happens, like try to give you a mental image so we can kind of have an idea. Yeah, I just remember driving through Mississippi, like moving down there and dad was obsessed with like, what do you think's back there? Because like the undergrowth is so thick, like the woods oh, yeah. are so thick. And he was just like, oh, what do you think's back there? Like nobody knows. Like, if you went in there, you'd never come out. Like, oh, I wonder what's back there. I mean, because yeah. it is kind of eerie. Like, it's it's like you're going to walk into a whole nother Cajun-ass world if yep. you step off the road. Yeah. Well, and if you haven't ever, if you guys have never been down to, like, the, the deep south, like Mississippi, Louisiana, um, and driven, you know, the, the foliage, the trees, the, it, it is, it's a very very stuffy swampy humid kind of um almost animalistic i don't know if that's the right word but it's very wild you know what i mean it it really i mean it really is it yeah words don't really do it justice yeah a whole different level yeah all right so taking it back to the term parish so parish has religious origins so kind of the history of Louisiana it was colonized by France and Spain prior to the year 1803 
when under French control, and obviously there's a lot of French roots in Louisiana because there are French, like Cajun French names and accents and that kind of thing, um, it brought a Roman Catholic influence to the area. And so parishes were established throughout the territory while it was under alternating under French and Spanish rule. So essentially mm -hmm. parish boundaries in Louisiana coincided with churches in that area. So mm -hmm. since then, mm -hmm. Louisiana has never deviated from that. And the primary divisions between these spaces have been officially known as parishes ever since. So what is, you know, Hancock County, Harrison County, you know, whatever counties in different states, Louisiana is parishes. So, but it's mm -hmm. the same thing as counties. They just consider it parishes. So you guys will hear are us they still, Are they still connected to the churches in that area? Do you know if that's still kind of an active thing? I mean, I'm sure it is. I'm sure that a lot of those churches have been around for, you know, almost 200, 200 years or however long. Um, but I do know that Louisiana is divided into 64 parishes. So, okay. Yeah. And so in this case, uh, I think to start with New Orleans as the marker of reference would be helpful because if anybody knows Louisiana, everybody, at least most people think about New Orleans, right? And if you mm -hmm. say New Orleans, just don't. Just don't. Okay. Uh, so New Orleans. It is at the bottom right part of Louisiana, kind of in the little boot panhandle part that sticks out, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so this is made up of Orleans Parish, St. Bernard Parish, Plaquemines Parish, Jefferson Parish. So that's kind of like yes. the, the more eastern shoe part, if you will. And if you go just southwest of that area, that is where most of this case takes place. Okay. Okay. This is what is really considered Bayou Country. Yes. Now, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that area is technically below sea level. Right? Like New Orleans is literally considered like yeah, slightly it's built below, below sea level. Yeah. 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 Cuz they have like levees that have to kind of control water and all of that stuff mm -hmm. right i when mean it's so breaks yeah yes so i mean that also kind of lets you guys know i mean it is literally swamp you are literally in the water yeah and so i just added just as a like a fun little fact here according to national geographic a bayou is a slow-moving creek or swampy section of a river or a lake. They are usually found in flat areas where water collects in pools. So mm -hmm. it's very wet. I mean, that's just a good word for it. Stagnant, a lot of kind of stale water, um, yeah. that kind of thing. So that's when we talk about like swamp and bayou. And so the bayou region of southeast Louisiana is made up of following parishes. Assumption. Lafouche, St. Mary, and Terrebonne. However, I think it's important to kind of just mention that quote-unquote bayou country really isn't so much the landmark stuff that we're going to be talking about. It is a, a big culture. So if mm -hmm. you go down to this area yep. in Louisiana, it's, it's Cajun country, it's bayou country, 
So even if you live in a parish that isn't technically considered a bayou parish, you can still have bayous in that parish. It's just not considered mm -hmm. a category of itself as a bayou parish. Does that make sense? Right. I mean, and it is like it's almost its own subculture in that area. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Zach was telling me whenever he worked offshore, because working offshore is a big thing down, especially in the Gulf Correct. Coast communities. That's where a lot of income comes for, you know, um, kind of your average Joes, if you will. And he said that his captain was was Cajun. He was like, it took me like three weeks to even understand what the fuck this dude was saying. Because uh, no, seriously. Yeah. And like it's it's all the stereotypes. Like if you've watched the movie The Water Boy. You know, like yeah. that coach that's like, <laughs> I mean, it's it's truly not being insensitive. It's no, it's, it's just that's how they like, are. And they'll tell you that's that. how they are. Yeah. So before you guys yeah. come in and attack us about this Cajun stuff, you ask anybody that is French Creole or Cajun down in South Mississippi, South Louisiana, and they'll be like, yes. yup, yup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So guys, we're really, I mean, we are really not making fun of culture. Like it's, we're just kind of, if you have not been exposed to it, it's, it takes you a second. It, yeah. it takes you a second because yeah. they are speaking English. They, it's just sometimes like, with maybe a little bit of French or Cajun thrown in there. Yeah. You're sometimes like, you don't I even mean... know what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> and so I say all of this stuff because this is where the name, the Bayou Strangler comes from. Because okay. he really operated it in this bayou, the southeast mm. Louisiana area, and which is bayou country. And so I mm -hmm. think it's safe to say we all kind of put two and two together that strangula strangulation was his ML. And so he mm -hmm. became dubbed the bayou strangler. Right. Okay. All right. So we're going to just dive in and tell you a little bit about Ronald Dominique. And we're going to go through... A little bit of his early life and kind of the things that molded him and get into it. Ronald Joseph Dominique was born on January 9th, 1964 in Thibodeau, Louisiana, Thibodeau. which is located at Thibodeau, which is located in Lafouche Parish. And he was mm -hmm. the youngest of two children. I'm not giving his sister's name. He has an older sister. I'm not giving her name or yeah. her, his parents' names because... <laughs> I don't know. I think they probably get enough harassment, and I don't want to add to that, right? Mm -hmm. Dominique's parents were poor laborers who lived in a trailer park located on the outskirts of the city. So he grew up in a pretty poor environment and lived out much of his childhood and adolescence in what you would consider poverty, right? But despite the financial struggles, Dominique was able to continue his time in school, and he went to Thibodeau High School. And though all the ports vary a little bit regarding his high school experiences as far as like details on certain things, all reports essentially claim the same thing and came to a consensus that he did not have a good positive high school experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. So growing up poor, that's probably one of the reasons. He was also always overweight. Okay. Hmm. He Ron. was overweight. Yeah. And he had grossly underdeveloped social skills. So Ron, I don't think it was there was no reports from like an IQ standpoint, but just socially he mm -hmm. 
he just couldn't quite put his finger on it. You know what I mean? Right, right. It just wasn't clicking. Mm-mm. And because of this, this made him a big target for bullying. Yeah. So the primary bullying approach was around his sexuality. He was relentlessly bullied, ridiculed, and harassed and was called gay despite reports at the time that he was not. So he denied this throughout high school, um, but nonetheless, he was bullied pretty, pretty relentlessly for it through the four years of high school. And he was considered a social outcast. He was not really part of any group in high school. And I think that's a really big important piece is I think if you can find a group in high school, and I don't care what group it is, it bubble wraps you a little bit, right? It does. It does. Whether you're like with the drama kids or you play sports or you, you know, are in the art I club. remember. I remember we had some really, really good friends in high school and they were into that card game magic. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? It's no. kind of like Dungeons. It's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons, but I feel like it's even a cheesier thing. And they were super into it. Like they would get together and have their magic cards, you know. And I'm, I just am like, good for you guys. Go on with your magic playing self, man. Like yeah. find, find your people, even if they're a little off. It's all right. Find yeah. your people. Find your people. Well, I think he had a hard and, time with that. And I feel like, okay, just really quick on a side note, like if you are a parent or if you are somebody who is around younger adults, like junior high, high school aged kids, maybe encourage them to seek out, like find those people and try to try to include them. A little yeah, bit. I think our school sure. systems now do a lot better than they did back in the, you know, late, I, I guess this would what be late 70s, essentially when he was in high school. I think our our public education hopefully does a little bit better job of being more inclusive like and diversified. Yeah. Yes, yeah, a little bit more diversified. But I mean, come on, guys, seek them out a little bit, show them a little bit of kindness, see if they want to play magic with you. It's okay. Right. Well, he was a part of Glee Club, and he performed in the school choir, but maybe due to this, and I think that piggybacks off what you were saying about, like, the tolerance and diversity in the 80s probably is not what it is today, and that right. was a big part for him being harassed and ridiculed for being gay, okay? And again, he didn't play sports, was not part of any other clubs, and he didn't drink or engage in drug use, and was just considered an unpopular social outcast. Okay, so this theme just carries, and, and we'll kind of get into that. So after his roller coaster of a high school experience, Dominique graduated from Thibodeau High School at the age of 19 in 1983. After graduation, he enrolled in Nichols State University, which is in Thibodeau, Louisiana, where he studied computer science. Evidently, he struggled in school, and he ended up dropping out of Nichols in the mid-80s. Hmm. So you're also going to see a theme of, like, he struggles with success in general. Yeah. If that makes sense. Bless. Yeah. 
So shortly believing, shortly before leaving school, Dominique, I guess, discovered that he was gay, or at least acknowledged it, and he began visiting local gay bars, okay? I bring this up because you guys have to really please understand that when we talk about this stuff, it's always central to the case and not necessarily our opinions. So it has nothing to do with, with my how I feel about gay. I don't care if somebody's gay. But this is a huge part, and you'll hear me kind of refer back to this time and time again throughout this this case. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he began, you know, frequenting gay bars, and he began kind of experimenting dressing in drag. And he tried his hand in, in drag and started to impersonate singer Patti LaBelle. And mm-hmm. I don't want to laugh at this. Because I want to be a sensitive human, but I also, like, he's a dirtbag. And so, you know, he couldn't even do that good. (laughs) (laughs) Like, apparently, apparently that was, like, so bad um, that there, like, there were a lot of reports that he then started to become bullied and outcast and become an outcast even in the LGBTQ community. Dude, okay. Like, that is heartbreaking. I mean, like you said, I know that we've talked about, I think it was a couple of episodes back where you're like, you can still feel bad for the, like, you know, growing, maturing kid young adult uh, like i'm sorry guys that just breaks it just breaks my heart like and mm. i think this is like there were a couple of like videos that i watched and a couple of criminologists speaking to this and and i and i agree i think that i put one of my high my hypothesis around this is that this psychosexual component of dominique's personality was really molded because he was outcasted by the last group that would have been his his like his tribe you know what i mean right yes and i think at that point like i think uh, a switch kind of flipped flipped in his mm-hmm. head and i and this is where mentally i think he starts declining mm-hmm. now this it's whole... like the lepers it's like the lepers from the bible Right. So like the people who contracted leprosy in the Bible, it was like, you want to talk about literal, like, don't look at them, don't touch Mm. them. I mean, completely. And they weren't even supposed to be around other lepers. Like you are done. You are the lowest of low. You, I mean, a lot of times they would end up just like starving and dying on the streets type of thing because Mm. nobody would touch them with a 10-foot pole and it's excuse me it's interesting that you say that and i'm going to come back to that probably mid mid episode but i think it really affected how he learned intimacy with other people Mm -hmm. okay and so the him frequenting the gay bars in homa kind of predates the murders by about a decade so there was Can anybody find me, me? Somebody, somebody to love. Yeah. Yeah. So the answer for Dominique was no. 
nobody nobody wants to love him right and so around the same time that he was i guess grappling with his sexual identity his sexual orientation uh he dropped out of college and then not long after that he starts his first introduction into criminal behaviors so on june 12th 1985 Dominique was arrested and fined for sexually harassing someone over the phone. And this is just the beginnings, like many serial killers, serial offenders. There's a he lot got of arrested? With the law. Mm-hmm. He got arrested for sexually harassing somebody all the, over the phone. Over the phone. And he okay. had to pay, I, like. I, I, I am sorry. I really did not know that was a thing. I didn't know you could be imprisoned over phone harassment well i don't think he like went to jail he was arrested and probably paid the 75 dollar fine and then they let him go oh okay you know what i mean 75 dollars yeah i think that's what it was (laughs) okay he's like i can pay that and so there wasn't a whole lot happening as far as criminal or even anything else in his life i mean he just kind of moved around from job to job um, kind of minimum wage laborer, if you will. And so he was arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol in 1994. So now okay. not only is he struggling with like successes in life, he's also starting to struggle with drinking and he's getting arrested for DUIs and this never ends well. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So Ronald Dominique had a quite had quite a lengthy criminal record before killing his killing streak started, and it lasted from 1997 to 2006. So for about nine years, he had a, a killing streak. Yeah. Prior to this, Dominique was arrested and charged no less than seven times for a variety of offenses, to include traffic violations, battery, and disturbing the peace. So by this point, he was getting closer to murder, as you see in the string of arrests in the early 90s. Okay. And so later in August of 96, August 25th of 1996, Dominique was arrested on a forcible rape charge. He had brought someone home and attempted to tie this man up, which is, you'll find as part of Dominique's M.O., And so when this man refused, Dominique became violent. This unidentified man quickly identified the danger of the situation and jumped out of the fucking window. So Dominique brought this guy home, attempted to tie him up, got violent. This dude was like, no. And he jumped out of the window. And neighbors had called the police after they saw this partially male excuse me, partially nude male jumping out of the window and running away. Okay. So this was the first, uh, what would you say, big step towards offending Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're starting starting to transition. We're going through a little bit of a transitional phase. Yeah. And so Dominique was arrested for this. How would you like to wake up to that? Streaking through the quad. Yeah. Was he in was he was he in an apartment? Did it say like where he was living at the time? It was a trailer. Uh-huh. So a lot of the story is Dominique 
is living in a trailer like on his sister's property a lot of the times oh oh yeah okay and so dominique was arrested for this and it was a one hundred thousand dollar bail so naturally he couldn't pay that (gasps) but who did did someone pay it nope so he ended up sitting in jail for three months and this is i think a a significant turn of events for him because when dominique was in jail he was brutally gang raped by some men and he ended up going to the hospital and needing stitches oh no y'all Ooh, i we're like on a we're about to hit rock bottom like this if we're not at rock bottom i feel like we're getting close to rock bottom yeah and and a lot of people say that this experience made him terrified of jail and this is where his behavior (sighs) started to change in his decisions regarding his mo changed because at this point something clicked in his head and he said i'm never fucking going back to jail Oh, I mean, oh, I don't blame him. I don't blame him. I don't, uh, I just, I don't understand rape in general. Like, I obviously understand what it means, but I, that, it just kind of blows my mind. Like how, I just feel like it's the most awful, dehumanizing, humiliating, I mean, total disregard for another human life. And and for someone to be gang raped, I oh, I'm sorry. I just don't. I just don't understand that that level of evil. Yeah. And so, uh, fortunately slash unfortunately, however you want to look at it, the prosecutor's office was unable to locate the alleged the alleged victim. Of, remember, he was in there because he attempted to tie this guy up, and he oh, jumped out uh-huh. of the window. They couldn't right. identify the identity of who this person was. So mm. it resulted in a dismissal of that of that charge in November of that year, which was 1996. Okay. So the end of 96, or yeah, the end of 96, the murders soon start. And okay. so I, I don't think that it takes a lot to put those two together. Uh, yeah. Um, this is where he decided to be more careful. So killing his rape victims to ensure their silence. Because again, <laughs> he would never go back to to jail or prison. Yeah. Yeah. So as his nickname suggests, the Bayou Strangler, most of Dominique's victims were raped were raped and tortured before being strangled to death. Mm-hmm. His victims were between the ages of nineteen and forty-six. Mm-hmm. Some were heterosexual, but most of them were homosexual males. Okay. And 18 of the victims were black. Five of the victims were white. So he preferred he preferred black males for his target hmm. for for his victimology. Hmm. Yeah. And most of them were they struggled with alcohol addiction issues, were homeless between towns living in shelters down on their luck people that Mm -hmm. society wouldn't miss essentially right Right. Right? so dominique's reign of terror began in 1997 with dominique's first identified 
victim, 19-year-old David Levron Mitchell. By all accounts, Mitchell had just graduated from Hanville High School. He was a school newspaper reporter, an honor roll student who had dreams of one day becoming a St. Charles Parish coroner. Mitchell had never abused drugs and was not into a high-risk lifestyle of any sort. One Saturday in the summer of 1997, Mitchell was attending a birthday party with his mother, grandmother, and aunt. Mitchell's aunt says that after the party that Saturday, that Saturday night, she dropped Mitchell off at his grandmother's house in Kelowna. Apparently, Mitchell had told his aunt that he was waiting for his uncle to give him a ride back to Luling, but his uncle didn't show up. So it's a guess that Mitchell just decided to walk or hitchhike back to his mom's home. Okay. So on Monday morning, Mitchell's supervisor at St. Parish Hospital, where Mitchell worked, called Mitchell's mom to ask, have you seen him because he didn't show up? And this is totally out of character. It turns out at that point, mom checks his room. His clothes and badge were still in his room untouched. So obviously he had not made it into work. At that point, the family knew that something wasn't right. They contacted the police. As the day progressed, now this is like the worst, okay? Just so just a heads up because this is really sad. As the day progressed, the Mitchell's family began to hear rumors about a black man's body that was found on River Road in Hanville. So the family turned on the television as they routinely did to watch the local news at noon. And it was there what they what they learned about the death of their nephew, son, and grandson. Mm. They had learned that the body of a young black man had been found in St. Charles Parish on River Road, and it showed a picture of him. No! Like it showed a picture of the deceased body no, or a picture like, uh, of like his picture, high his... school. Oh, you, you know, know, that's a really good question. I, for some reason, I assumed it was a picture. I think, I think it was just a picture of his face. Like I don't think it was a crime photo. I think it was a picture of his face. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so that's how his family found out. Oh, my gosh. That, oh, that's just, oh, that's terrible. That is terrible. It was soon learned that Mitchell's body was dumped near a wooded area off a stretch of an abandoned road, which was River Road in Hanville. And what's so on the question... I, mm-hmm. And I, you might have already said this, but so do we know like how long it was before he allegedly walked home to when they found the body? Do we know like what, how much time elapsed? So the party was Saturday night. They didn't see him Sunday. And there was just reports that they thought he was with friends. And then he did not show up for work on Monday. And I think, I believe that he was found Sunday, I, I think, is when they found him. But the family didn't know until the news the following day. And okay. I think that, so. It was um, a pretty quick, quick turnaround. Yeah, and I and I think that they believe that the murder happened that night. Okay. Yeah. What's unfortunate in the investigation initially is they ruled Mitchell's death an accidental drowning. Where Mitchell's body was found was remote, well off of the main roadway, 
and he had no reason to be in that area. He was found in chest-deep water with his pants around his ankles. An autopsy later revealed that Mitchell's lungs were filled with the same water that was found in the ditch. There were no bruises on his body, no alcohol or drugs in his system. And it wasn't until later, after Dominique's confession, where they really learned that David LeVron Mitchell had in fact been murdered by Ronald Dominique. There wasn't any signs of strangulation? No, that was reported. Or maybe they weren't. Or maybe they weren't looking? Maybe they weren't looking. So, I mean... This so this is part of the dynamics in here, and we're gonna we're gonna end up talking about it multiple times throughout this case. So this is in the late '90s. This is a black man, okay, and I think that that plays into potentially some knee jerk judgments or knee jerk reactions from investigators for when we see. Uh, the string of bodies pop up that were mostly black males who hmm. had histories. And so I, I just said that it's it's kind of odd how Dominique picked up Mitchell as detectives would later identify because Mitchell didn't really fit um, the victimology that the rest of the victims did. But I also don't think that that's super unusual for the first victim i was gonna say i mean don't you kind of think that you just have to start i and i shouldn't say you have to start somewhere nobody should ever start serial killing anywhere but in the in the realm of killing and i feel like an mo kind of has to be created it's not there already i mean maybe for some yeah, like maybe for some, they kind of know exactly what they want right out the gate. But I imagine for most of them, it's just like, well, you know what? Today's the day. Here's an opportunity. We're doing it. You know, like yeah. we're doing this thing. Well, and detectives shared that Dominique usually, especially early on, scouted two primary areas. The first of them was along Louisiana Highway 182 coming into Homa near kind of low-budget motels that was known for drugs and sex work. Mm-hmm. The second was Mechanicville, sorry if I said that wrong, neighborhood in East Homa. And so Dominique's murders reached as far as New Orleans and several other parishes, St. Charles, Jefferson, LaForche, Assumption, and Iberville. So even though he started off kind of in these lower socioeconomic areas where he could easily find people willing to get in a truck with him, um, it didn't always, as you see as we progress, it doesn't stick to that pattern or that MO. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just six months after Mitchell's murder, Dominique would take his second victim, and that's 20-year-old Gary Pierre from Norco, Louisiana in St. Charles Parish. One day in mid-December, Pierre was on his way to a new job at Taco Bell. Pierre's mother described him as a sweet, full-of-life, good son, and he was not into gangs or drugs. Gary Pierre did not even have a chance to collect his first paycheck from work. 
On December 14, 1997, Pierre's body was found in a wooded area of Mons, which is about 12 minutes' drive from Norco, on Vickers Lane off of CC Road. Okay. As an interesting note, the sheriff's office flew in Michael Baden, chief forensic pathologist of the New York State Police and host of the HBO TV documentary Autopsy, hmm. to examine the body. It was Dr. Baden that had found Oof. evidence that Pierre had been bound before being strangled. So you'll see that there, like some of the victims were bound, but not a lot. And there was a lot of reports that were wishy-washy on which victims were bound and not. Were and so, bound. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, about six months after Pierre's body was found, Dominique struck again. So he is on his third in the span of a year. On July 31st, 1998, alongside Louisiana Highway 3160 near Hanville, Larry Ransom's body was discovered. It was apparent that Ransom had been strangled and kicked in the groin, and it appeared that Ransom was the first victim sub subjected as I subjected to bondage. So this is what I mean. I put this in here and I kept this in here because that's what some of the reports said, but other reports said that they flew in this, you know, forensic pathologist that found out that he was not probably the first one bound, mm, but mm -hmm. they weren't looking for it. Right. Right. right? Well, and, you know, I guess it, I guess it always, like, I always kind of wonder too, Maybe this is literally just like uncharted territory for this police force. You know what I mean? Like maybe they just it's like we've we've never seen anything like this. Like, yeah, we're not used to seeing, um, you know, especially men. Right. Like, I don't know. With I feel like victims. it makes more with male victims. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like they're just not biologically you think that men are typically stronger right like mm -hmm. you don't see i i don't know i just don't feel like you see as many especially adult males right yeah. like yeah that's, and, and that's a little unusual and we'll touch on that too because those are all really good points and so like pierre it was reported that ranson was also a heavy drug user i don't bring this up to shame people who struggle with addiction because you know me my heart I love helping people with addiction that's that's what I love to do um but it's important because this is part of his mo and how he how he finds his victims so we're mm -hmm. looking at in a short succession there have been three bodies found in St. Charles mm -hmm. Parish mm -hmm. okay all of the now, same are they is he dumping them I mean it sounds like they are pretty easily found Right. Like it's not like he's hiding these bodies. It's, to it's any... kind of, it looks like, um, so where he usually would choose to dump them were like in sugarcane fields and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. but some of them would just be like on the side of the road. Some of them would be on kind of an entrance road off of a main highway. So there's not a whole lot of foot traffic there, but he wouldn't ever bury them. He would just dump I was... them yeah that's so interesting. to my to my knowledge of doing all of this research all 23 victims none of them were buried at all okay. so he would just leave them laying out you know in the exposed to the elements mm -hmm. so all of the saint charles victims were black men with thin builds and who were known to travel by hitchhiking so even with the first one even though the reports were that he was a good kid 
I think that he sometimes would still kind of pick up rides if he didn't have a primary vehicle. So that doesn't mean mm-hmm. that there's, you know, a lot of people would, would hitchhike even coming into the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it makes sense at this point, investigators are beginning to think that there's a link between these three victims. So it took having about three victims for investigators to say, oh, I think that there might be something going on here. Mm-hmm. Right. So not to mention the body count, it starts to rise pretty consistently. Right. And they had and they found zero evidence, no hairs, fibers, DNA at all from the first three victims. And so now he's not he's not sexually assaulting these men. So we'll come to we know we'll come to find out that his his MO is rape and murder. So strangulation. Rape and strangulation are his is his MOs. But not leaving behind. But he's not leaving any evidence or they're not checking for this. Probably both. I, okay. There were reports that he would wear condoms, so he was he was careful of that. Right. Um, but. Gotcha. They might not have been. I, I doubt that they were looking for that also. Right. Right. So in October of 1998, a fourth body is found, which would turn out to be Dominique's fourth victim, Oliver LeBanks. Earlier that month, Dominique had met 27-year-old LeBanks at a gay bar down in the French Quarter at New Orleans. And apparently LeBanks had offered Dominique sexual services in exchange for money. So you'll see that a lot of these men would turn to sex work either to mm-hmm. support their their habit and their addiction mm-hmm. or because they didn't have other means of of obtaining financial gains, right? Mm-hmm. So unfortunately for LeBanks, Ronald Dominique accepted his offer. He took him back to his vehicle and hit LeBanks over the head with a tire iron, strangled him with a belt, and raped him. Dominique would later say during interrogations that he was the victim in this interaction. Mm-hmm that he accidentally killed LeBanks because LeBanks had made some sort of, you know, threat to him or something of that nature. And so he had told initially, he had told in- investigators that he accidentally killed him and then he dumped the body because he panicked. So Dominique, yes, made confessions, but he never really took any accountability for what he did. Mm, okay. So he victim blames them, you know. Oh. Mm-hmm. Is there, Actually, do you know if there's a reason, like, do you see that? Because I feel like that's, I feel like there's a, um. I feel like you get both, right? You get kind of in the confession side of things. Like you get the people who are just like, nope, it was, it was me man like it was all me and then you have the ones that like you said victim blame i wonder why why do you think the victim blaming i mean because he's a bitch i don't know he he doesn't want to take he just he doesn't want to take any fucking accountability for for these lines he's taking he just is not my fault for me he's like poor me i got raped in in jail and i'm like in jail so so now it's okay for you 
you know, to go and rape and murder 23 people. Like, get the fuck right. out of here, man. That's not how that works. That's true. That's true. Like, how did you like it? You didn't like that, did you? Now, why are you doing... I mean, I feel like this is maybe should have been talked about when he was like six like maybe they didn't have that fundamental like how did that make you feel well maybe you shouldn't hit people then yeah maybe I mean, they maybe he missed that conversation maybe his mom and dad didn't have that conversation with them when he was or little. maybe they did but he was too busy sulking in his room being a victim <laughs> and he didn't hear it <laughs> Like me, 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 me. You guys uh and don't understand me. Yeah, he's probably like, you know, my life sucks and nobody understands me. And my response always to this shit is there's a lot of people who grow up with abuse or alcoholic parents or, you know, who grew up in really bad environments and they don't turn around and assault people and kill them. Okay. I mean, pretty much, pretty much. I just, I just don't have the tolerance for like not taking accountability. That's, that's one of my biggest pet peeves. Okay. So he panicked. He dominate then disposed of LeBang's body in the outskirts of Metairie. And during the autopsy, traces of Dominique's semen was found on LeBang's body. Oh, oh, snap. You done messed up, A.A. Ron. R.R. Ron. Get it? R.R. Ron. I was literally thinking about that earlier. This DNA would later be part of the evidence used to bring Dominique to justice. Later that Ooh. month, on October 20th, 1998, Dominique met a 16-year-old boy named Joseph Brown in Kenner, Louisiana. Dominique lured Brown to his truck, allegedly trying to sell drugs to him. And once he was inside the truck, Dominique, Dominique hit Brown repeatedly on the head with a blunt object and raped and strangled him. Dominique then dumped Brown's body on a dead-end road in Kenner. His body had been discovered with a plastic bag next to his head that had blood on it. Investigators weren't sure if that plastic bag was what was used to suffocate and strangle Brown or if it was a cover to keep blood from getting in Dominique's shitty vehicle. Oh, I'm sure it was the latter. Did he drive a Buick? No, he drives. He drove a black GMC truck. Because oh. he's... Okay. Whatever. How original. Sadly, Joseph Brown was Dominique's fifth victim. Mm. And I hate that you were like, and that semen would later, you know, convict him. I'm like, yeah, 10 years later or however many, like seven years later. Yeah. Gosh, dang. Like, I don't know. Part of me is like, we should just have some form of database, right? Where it's like, just collect everybody's saliva, everybody up and down your street, like have it ready and so when you pull some DNA off of a person, because a lot of times they're not in a criminal database, right? Like, you know, a lot of times they're not in jail before they start killing people. Like, I think we should have just a normal, like, the normal database. 
and everybody's in yeah. it. And I'm I mean, sure people are like, a lot oh, of that's big. Cases. I mean, like, and I know that people are like, oh, that's big brother. Oh, that's like big government and invading your privacy. But you know what? Don't be a serial killer and you won't have to worry about having your spit in a your DNA in some normal database. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, come totally. on. I know. I know. It and would so solve we have much faster. It would. Yeah. And so we have reached the year of 1999. So we, we've had five victims in a little under two years, which started in 97. And I wanted to add in here that after Brown's murder, Dominique found a different job as a laborer at St. Charles Parish Maintenance Department. Which gave, him op- which gave him opportunities of knowing the areas and scoping out the area and where he could pick up victims and where he could dump bodies. Mm-mm. So later that year, in May 1999, Dominique used a similar ruse on 18-year-old Bruce Williams. He had picked him up offering him probably money or drugs or something along those lines and and murdered Williams. You know what makes me mad? Look, I'm going to tell you. I'm sorry. This this stuff just makes me mad cuz first of all, like you're spending all this time, like he's spending all this time and energy obsessing about like scoping out the landscape and knowing it better. You know what you could be spending all that obsession and time doing? Going to the gym. What? Mm-hmm. Going, going to the. You could go to the gym. You could get onto Whole Thirty. You know, you could, you could spend that time working as a volunteer at the hospital. I mean, you can go to the gym. You can perfect your Patty Labelle. You know, uh, right? Performances. Right? You could do a whole lot that would not make you more of a social outcast, like being a fucking serial killer. I mean, I. It just that I think what I think that's what pisses me off more than anything is these people are so dedicated to it. Like and he's obviously successing. He's succeeding at doing yeah. this. Like find a better hobby. hobby. Yeah. Ho- find a better hobby than picking up young men who have they have their life ahead of them. I'm sorry that you don't have a life ahead of you. But rude, inconsiderate. These people had a life. They had a future. They were doing things. And you're an asshole. I'm sorry. I just, well, there's and there certain was, people um, that just piss me off. Yeah. And there was a, I don't remember because I watched a lot of documentaries and videos and I read a lot on putting this whole thing together. But one of the investigators mentioned in one of the docu-series like, you'll find out that Dominique didn't really do shit. Like, he just stayed at home when he, when he, in between these times. And he just, like, didn't, he didn't even leave the house. He didn't do anything, right? So he probably went to his stupid trailer and sulked and sat in his little victim corner and was just like, you know, my life sucks. I'm an outcast. Nobody likes me. You know? Golly, that stuff makes me mad. Yeah. It, re- it really does. So six months after the murder of Bruce Williams in May of 1999, Dominique was cruising around Kenner when he came across 21-year-old Manuel Reed, who offered to sell him drugs. 
like many of his ruses before. I'm thinking of rouses like the supermarkets in like Mississippi. Like the supermarket. Yeah. yeah. Like the ruses before, Dominique accepted Reed's offer and let him into his truck. It was there where Dominique raped and strangled Reed. Dominique then drove to an industrial strip about a mile from where he dumped Joseph Brown's body a few months earlier and stuffed Reed's body inside a dumpster at Bainbridge Street in Kenner, Louisiana. So this hmm. one he put into a dumpster. Why? I wonder why he exerted more energy as opposed to dumping him. You know, like, I, I wonder... Know. I don't you know, know. And you always wonder, like, are you like, oh, let's try a dumpster. And, you know, like, I... And it's you made a really good point a few episodes back where it's like, I think, you, what was it? You were like, I am not a psychopath. I'm not a sociopath, you know. And so if you are not one of those people, then you try to use logic in kind of an illogical thought process, yeah. right? Where it's like, why? Like you try to normalize. Like maybe they, and, may, and maybe it was none of the above. Maybe he was just like, I'm going to throw him in a dumpster this time. There's a dumpster. Yeah, it's like it's like that movie, The Cell, with with Jennifer. What's her name? Lopez. Oh, uh -huh. Lopez. Get that serial killer's mind, and it's like you're trying to make sense of this wild and crazy place. Mm -hmm. And and we want like we want organization, we want structure, um, mm -hmm. but can't get that by trying to look inside a serial killer's brain, right? Yeah, right. It was later identified that Reed had suffocated and was found without his shirt and his shoes. And that's going to be an important piece. Um, I don't know if Dominique actually removed the shoes or if the victim removed the shoes prior to death. But that's, yeah. that becomes something. So just hold on to that. Okay. So similar to LeBanks, semen traces were found on Manuel Reed's body, which belonged to an unknown male, which would end up being Dominique. This, too, would later become crucial pieces of evidence, of DNA evidence for the prosecution. And just a month after the murder of Manuel Reed, another body was found about seven blocks from where Reed's body had been found. So some of them are scattered all over, and then you have times where he dumps them very close to each other. Kind of clustered. Uh -huh. Yeah. So this victim was 21-year-old Angel Mejia. And that mm -hmm. was Dominique's eighth victim. So we were up to eight victims at this point. Mejia had been strangled like the others, but had ligature marks on his legs from rope that Dominique possibly used to either restrain Mejia while he was alive or to move mm -hmm. Mejia's body. Mm. Now, something else that's interesting is after Mejia's body was found, this is when there started to be like a rumor mill. Local rumors of like an urban legend started going around where people would call this this guy potentially this unknown mm -hmm. force the shoeless killer. Huh. Because some of the victims were being found with their shoes removed from their feet. Hmm. Okay. And this is what started to connect these murders. So some of the victims, like I said, were found without shoes. But it wasn't considered a signature for Dominique. It wasn't like part of his. He had to do it, you know, to satisfy whatever compulsion or mm -hmm. sick thing that he had. Right. 
But another interesting piece of this is that while police were investigating Angel Mejia's murder, they will, were able to identify that Mejia, Brown, and Pierre, so two of the other victims, had all known each other and lived in close proximity to each other. So this is hmm. like, this is, I mean, these are kind of small neighborhoods. These are tight communities that this was happening yeah. in. And and so three of the victims knew each other. And we're going to see other kind of overlaps for, for victims mm -hmm. also. But Mejia was Dominique's eighth victim. And he just keeps going. In late August of 1999, Dominique met 34-year-old Mitchell Johnson. Johnson had turned to sex work to support his habit. And Dominique had, eventually he offers Mitchell drugs in exchange for sexual favors. Once okay. Dominique had Johnson alone, he then took Johnson to some woods outside of Metairie where he tied him up, raped him, and strangled him to death. Johnson's body was discovered on September 1st and he was found fully nude. Hmm. Yeah. So you'll see that... Um, Dominique has these cooling off periods where there would be months where he, and, and at one point years, a year where he just doesn't do anything. So he has these big, it's like a binge, a binge and purge kind of thing. Right. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure what he was doing during that time. Dominique possibly, you know, fighting the urge to rape and kill. I don't think, I don't think he was fighting the urge for moral reasons. I think that he was trying to stay off of police radar, right? Like you said, he's probably sulking. He's probably just in his trailer in his listening sulking. to Stained. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. ICP is probably listening to Insane Clown Posse. No, he was in Glee. He was probably listening to Patti LaBelle. Yeah. And... <laughs> Probably and sulking about that one too. Damn. Right. That's pro yeah. That was probably his fuel. He'd go home and he'd listen to Patty LaBelle and he'd be like, It's all your fault, Patty. I tried to be you and everybody rejected me. Yeah. Poor Patty. Poor LaBelle. me. Yeah. Poor, poor, pitiful me. Poor, poor, poor pitiful, pitiful me. me. Yeah. So according to an article by the Homa Times. Alex Lambert, who is one of the directors for the documentary Bayou Blue, which, by the way, is a really good documentary on Amazon Prime about the Bayou mm. Stringware, said that the location of the case in South Louisiana dealt with complicated issues such as homophobia, with the idea of a gay serial killer who targeted victims associated with poverty or drugs. The, so that is kind of what we've alluded to up until this point. But the director who went down and interviewed families and saw the locations of, you know, where this was happening, he was like, it was, it was complicated. It was definitely lots of layers of stuff to try to figure some of this stuff out. And we also, the, this is a little kind of early to bring up, but just something to think about the time frame surrounding the end of this 
murder spree in 2006 was in the shadow of Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. And so, but up until this time, I mean, this area of Homa, they had had other things happen. You know, they had other natural disasters. They had oil spills. There was a lot that, you know, this, these little towns, these bayou towns, if you will, were, were struggling with. Mm -hmm. Right. So five months after Mitchell Johnson's murder, so in January of 2000, we now have reached the year 2000, Dominique found his next victim, which would be his 10th victim. Um, that was 23-year-old Michael Vincent. Dominique had raped and killed Vincent and dumped his body at LeFou's Parish. Now, what's interesting about this is prior to Vincent, Dominique's vict victims were all found in St. Charles and Jefferson parishes. Michael Vincent was the first found in Lafouche. This is one of the reasons it took so long for Dominique to be identified because there were different parishes, which meant different investigative precincts, which always complicates good communication. Right. I think there ends up being a total of five parishes that these murders and, and disposals happened. Mm -hmm. And I mean... It's like, think about all five members of one family trying to communicate over an issue and how difficult mm -hmm. that is. Right. right. And so this is where we are going to leave it for part one. Okay. You know, so I'm thinking, like, I'm sorry, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like dazing off a little bit because I'm just kind of thinking where I'm like, if it's the sex that you want... That is an easy thing, right? Like you can pay for that. You can trade for that. Like it is not the sex. It is not the act of, you know, even the raping. Like it is the murder. Like it is the killing. It is the, like that is what is driving this person. You know, because I'm always like, you can have, like you could find ways, you could find sexual outlets. But I don't think that's what it is, right? Like, I don't think that's what is really making this dude tick. It is the process of, and I personally am like, strangulation really creeps me out. Because it's just so because personal? It's so personal. Yeah. Like, I don't know if the victims were face up or face down, but it's like, historically, you hear that they are typically face up and they are watching, like they are literally face to face watching this person yeah, die. Like, and that yeah. just, it just bothers me on a different, on a different level. Strangulation yeah. cases just, that's, a, that's to me, again, that is just another, that's a next level evil mm -hmm. in my mind. Yeah. It, it's and, just kind of And we're going to get in the next the next part we're going to get in more into kind of his mo obviously we're going to talk about justice and and the arrest and all of that but we're going to dig in a little bit to maybe some of the the motivations behind and how he was able to carry it out i'm telling so, you okay like i you heard it first here we need we needed we need a database. We need yeah. everybody. We need everybody's DNA in a database. Period. End of story. Because like I said, I feel like it might 
probably um deters deters that's the word i'm looking for like i i mean do you think like it might deter some of this activity just because it's like hey we have everybody's dna so if i leave semen if i leave dna if i leave my skin cells under some person's fingernails they're going to find me quickly yeah i mean i think it would deter yeah i think it would yeah i don't know that's a that's a tough one i think it would deter people who might be curious about it but these kind of hardcore outlier serial killers maybe it wouldn't i don't know or maybe at least it would shorten like you said the rain maybe it would shorten the rain of terror because if they had him if they had him in a database somewhere with the with the semen with the dna i imagine they hopefully could have found this guy a little bit faster i don't know am i am i more passionate about this than i should be am i making this a lot easier am i in my mind am i making it more simple than it could be no but we'll talk more about it in part two Hey, Wildside Tribe, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Wildside Podcast. Make sure to tune in on Wildside Wednesdays. New episodes will drop each Wednesday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We would love to hear from you. So if you have a wild case recommendation, email us at wildsidepodcast at gmail.com. That's wildside with a C. Or share your thoughts in the comments below. As always, if you haven't heard it today, you're loved, you're worthy, and you're valuable. And we'll catch you on the The flip flip side. side.